Over the last four weeks, even though there's only been three weeks of uh, me preaching on this, we've, we've looked at the difference between our traditional view of heaven and hell and what the Bible actually says about heaven and hell. And strangely enough, we found that they're different. And if we look at the uh, diagram I've got up here, we, we learned that we're actually made in the image of God. And the fact that we are made in that image is important because that image gives us a purpose and a plan. And our, our plan, which if you read the Bible lasts for about two and a half pages, uh, was that we would carry the image of God into the earth and be his representatives and uh, rule and reign. And that was interrupted by sin and death and in the present age which is which is now we're faced with a choice that we have to make we have the choice to live in eternal life or we have the choice to live as zombies as the living dead um, so all these zombie movies that you watch are actually biblically based so um, uh, feel free to watch them if you like that sort of thing um, and so We've also looked very briefly, and I apologise to those who want to know more about it, about this intermediate state, which is what most of us have thought of, or at least our society thinks of, as the end result of death for a Christian is that you die and your spirit goes to heaven and your body crumbles to dust in the, in the dirt, and that's the end of it. Um, but that's actually, biblically speaking, just an intermediate stage. And whether you believe in God or a follower of Jesus or not, you end up in that intermediate stage for an indeterminate time. And there's an, a sort of a lack of understanding as to whether you know about that time or whether you're asleep. And we could do a whole other series on that, but unfortunately we, we have to sort of just leave that as a bit of an unknown. The Bible actually doesn't really talk a lot about that. It talks a lot more about the age to come and the fact that, that, that our ultimate destination as followers of Christ is to be re resurrected into uh, new transformed bodies and to rule and reign with him, not up in heaven, but when heaven comes to earth. And we talked about how heaven and earth interact last week and how that it's actually a present reality we are actually the carriers of the kingdom of heaven or or, or the, the kingdom of god and we can actually deposit bits of heaven wherever we go unfortunately we can deposit bits of other stuff as well um, but that's not actually what we're called to do and so the thing is okay so what happens to people who don't follow jesus what about this, this idea that, that scares the poop out of us, this idea of hell? Now, I'm not going to call it hell, because hell is actually just one description used in the Bible of many that it uses. So it's really eternal death is a, is a better term for it. Uh, because hell is just one, one facet of it. It's a bit like a kaleidoscope. Did anybody ever have one of those as a kid? You used to get it in your show bag, you look through it, and you twist it, and the patterns all change. There's only one source of light coming in, but depending on how you look at it, it looks different. And so this idea of eternal death has several facets to it, and I'm going to go through some of those, uh, and we're going to find out what hell is really about, and uh, why people get to go there, and why they actually might want to go there. So here we go. Well, let's, let's, let's look at... Uh, Daniel chapter 12 verse 2 and it's, this is what it says about heaven and hell. It says many of those whose bodies lie dead and buried will rise up, some to everlasting life, heaven, and some to shame and everlasting disgrace, which is a picture of eternal death. So 
it's limiting to use the word hell because there are so many things going on here. So this eternal death, if we get this, uh, the diagram back up, uh, is actually an ongoing continuation of that bottom trajectory there. It's not something that, it's not a surprise twist at the end. Ha ha, you died, now you're going to hell. It's not one of those, you know, flip the card and say, uh-oh, no, sorry, you lose. It's not a surprise. People who go to eternal death have been headed that way since they made a decision to go in that direction. And so it's exactly what you'd expect. It's a continuation of the reality that we have gone through or some people have gone through in this present age. And it's the end of that entire life of separation from God and goes on to be increasingly so. Now, hell is real. But it's my conviction that almost every passage in the Bible that talks about hell or eternal death describes it using metaphor and imagery. Now, a lot of people get uncomfortable when you talk about metaphor and imagery because the automatic assumption is that if, you, if you're talk, talking metaphorically, you're talking about something that's not real. Um, but that's totally untrue. I can say, Vicky is a fireball. Now, we know that she's not actually a real fire. She's not. I mean, she's hot. That's, that's a given. Um, but the, it, it projects an image of somebody who's full of energy, full of life, could be a little on the hot-tempered side, uh, but is, is, is yeah, <laughs> uh, but I, only the people who offend her, so, you know, only a select few people might have seen that fiery side. Um, and uh, if you need counselling, come to me. Uh, <laughs> Actually, no, don't. <laughs> um, but the thing is that if I use all that imagery, does that mean that Vicky's not real? No. She's very real. Very hot. Uh, real. Um, and so we've got to understand that when the Bible uses metaphor and imagery, it's not saying that things aren't real. The reason we use that sort of thing is metaphors and images are how we use everyday recognisable items to describe something that is indescribable that we don't have the words or the pictures in our minds to describe, so we borrow from what we do know to give people an idea of what we don't know. And so there's images of eternal death, and the most common, who, who knows what the most common and predominant image of, of hell is? Fire. We think of uh, fire is the, probably the most commonly used image uh, of judgment and hell. If we look in Malachi chapter 4, it says, The Lord of heaven's army says the day of judgment is coming, burning like a furnace. On that day, the arrogant and the wicked will be burned up like straw. They will be consumed, roots, branches and all. But you who fear my name, the son of righteous, will rise with healing in his wings and you will go free, leaping with joy like calves out to pasture. You ever seen those calves when they do that? Boing, boing. It's a, it's a great little image, isn't it? How, how free do they feel? They've been cooped up in a pen all night and suddenly out they go, boing, boing. That's, that's how we are supposed to feel at this time. So get rid of that serious face. Get, I mean, it's, it's James, my grandson's favourite word, boing, whenever he sees animals and things. So we, we've got to have that boing spirit in us. But those who are obviously uh, not uh, following the son of righteousness or Jesus, uh, burning like a furnace, burned up like straw, doesn't sound too much like fun. So fire in the Old Testament has a consuming, eliminating, purging and purifying imagery. Um, Zephaniah 
chapter 3, verse 8 says, Therefore be patient, says the Lord. Soon I will stand and accuse these evil nations, for I have decided to gather the kingdoms of the earth and pour out my fiercest anger and fury on them. All the earth will be devoured by the fire of my jealousy. I mean, this is an image of judgment. Fire is, is judgment. And you, know, you need to read the book of Revelation. If you like fire, read that book. It's full of it. There's lakes of fire. There's rivers of fire. There's, there's, it's, it's full of fire. And it's all closely connected with purging evil in that book of Revelation. So fire is... A, but it's an image. If you've got this idea that hell is this spiritual place, you've heard these, these things where there's rooms where people are standing in fire up to their knees and fire up to their necks and then there's that room where they're only standing up to their, their ankles. And I'll, I'll tell that one later. Um, it's just a hellishly bad joke. Um, so the, the other image we have of eternal death is what we know as hell. But where does the word hell come from? Does anyone know? It's actually, hell is one of these strange, it's actually a Greek word. Uh, when you see it in the New Testament, 99.9% .9 of the time, it's the Greek word Gehenna. And Gehenna is the Greek spelling of a Hebrew Aramaic word, which sounds nothing like Gehenna. It's Gai Ben Hinnom. Or just Gai Hinnom. And it actually refers to a physical place. It's the, it's the valley of Ben-Hinnom, west of Jerusalem. There is actually a physical valley called Ben-Hinnom. And you sort of think, well, why has that valley gained the name of hell? And it's done that because bad things happened in the valley of Ben-Hinnom. And if we look in uh, one, 2 Chronicles chapter 28 and verse 1, we've got this, this King Ahaz he was 20 years old when he became king and he reigned in Jerusalem 16 years. He did not do what was pleasing in the sight of the Lord as his ancestor David had done. Instead, he followed the example of the kings of Israel. He cast metal images for the worship of Baal. He offered sacrifices in the valley of Ben-Hinnom, even sacrificing his own sons in the fire. In this way, he followed the detestable practices of the pagan nations the Lord had driven from the, the land ahead of the Israelites. And so the memory of this particular event absolutely reverberated through Jewish culture. And so we read it, and the prophet Jeremiah came along. The word that he brought from God was pretty strong. God was quite ticked at the whole idea that people would sacrifice children. And so he says in Jeremiah chapter 19, verse 2, he says to Jeremiah, go out through the gate of broken pots to the garbage dump in the valley of Ben-Hinnom and give them this message. Say to them, listen to this message from the Lord, you kings of Judah and citizens of Jerusalem. This is what the Lord of heaven's army, the God of Israel, says. I will bring a terrible disaster on this place and the ears of those who hear about it will ring. Now, who knows we're not looking forward to this already. It says, for Israel has forsaken me, turned this valley into a place of wickedness. The people burn incense to foreign gods, idols never before acknowledged by this generation, by their ancestors, or by the kings of Judah. And they have filled this place with the blood of innocent children. They've built pagan shrines to Baal, and there they burn their sons as sacrifices to Baal. I have never commanded such a horrible deed. It never even crossed my mind to command such a thing. So beware. 
For the time is coming, says the Lord, when this garbage dump will no longer be called Topheth or the Valley of Ben-Hinnom, but the Valley of Slaughter. And so Israel paid dearly for what they'd done in this valley. And, and you sort of think, well, you know, is God getting a bit heavy here? You know, like, relax. You know, chill. Stop, stop predicting disaster for people. But he's actually saying this is an absolutely warranted response to the evil that's been done. It's a dark place. It's a bad time in Israel's history. And so in the history of Judaism, this place becomes a vivid metaphor of what God did to Israel because what they'd done in the valley of Ben-Hinnom. And so the word Gehenna, where that comes from, is, where, is the word hell in all of our Bibles. It's interesting. We, we, and we actually need to understand that it's a physical place. It's a bit like Armageddon. Who knows that the, uh, the word Armageddon comes from the valley of Megiddo, or something like that, Megiddo. Any help? No. Megiddo. Anyway, it's a place which is also in Israel. Um, Megiddo? Now, you're, you're just guessing like me. So, okay. So we've got to have this, when we, when we hear the word or when we use the word hell, we've got to have this in the back of our minds, otherwise we have this really odd picture of a spiritual place where some guy in a red suit with horns and a pitchfork is just poking people incessantly, making life miserable for them. That's not actually the biblical version of hell. And so the word Gehenna is almost entirely in the New Testament used by Jesus. And so you've got, you got to ask, does this mean that Jesus doesn't think hell's real just because he's using a metaphor of this valley from the Israel's past? And, that's, and the answer, of course, is no. He thinks it's very real. And he's using that metaphor because his opinion, if you like, his desire for us is to avoid it at all costs. He does not want us going there and he's using the metaphor to let us know that it's a bad, bad place. The other primary image is of darkness. And we know that that's metaphor and imagery again because you think about it, if it's literal language, we've got this place of hell that's full of fire and full of darkness. I don't know whether you've even been near a fire, but it's hard to be dark near a fire. It actually puts out light. And so we know that this isn't a real place, but these are metaphors of something that's in that place. And so we look at this sort of reality. And when Jesus uses the image of darkness, he always matches darkness with remorse and sadness. Um, in Matthew 8.10, there's the story of the centurion who comes and uh, says his servant needs healing. And in verse 10, he says, when Jesus heard this, and, and what he heard was the, the faith the centurion had, he turned, turning to those who were following him, he said, I tell you the truth, I haven't seen faith like this in all Israel. And I tell you this, that many Gentiles will come from all over the world, from east and west, and sit down with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob at the feast in the kingdom of heaven. But many Israelites, those for whom the kingdom was prepared, will be thrown into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. <laughs> doesn't sound a nice place. 
So this is a Gentile centurion whose servant needs healing and he responds to Jesus in faith. And meanwhile, most of Jesus' Jewish contemporaries are totally rejecting him, saying that he's not the Messiah and so on. And so Jesus uses these very powerful words. He says, Gentiles are going to come and enjoy the feast of the kingdom and the people who the kingdom was made for, who were promised the kingdom, are going to find themselves outside in the dark. And therefore, it's a picture of sorrow and remorse. It's that opportunity missed. And so... Paul uses a similar and fairly unpleasant image in 2 Thessalonians. He says, And God will provide rest for you who are being persecuted, and also for us when the Lord Jesus appears from heaven. So that's good news. He will come with his mighty angels in flaming fire, bringing judgment on those who don't know God and on those who refuse to obey the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will be punished with eternal destruction, forever separated from the Lord and from his glorious power. And so what, is, what does Paul mean with, about eternal destruction? Does he mean that we're going to get obliterated? That people who don't follow Jesus, just, there's, a, there's a big sort of two pair of, a pair of heavenly hands, you know, pass, pass, people just vanish out of existence. I don't think that's what he's saying. Destruction in the Bible doesn't mean you vanish from existence. It means you lose your purpose, you're ruined, or you're lost. There's a, there's a, a great theologian, a guy called uh, Gordon Fee, and he, he encapsulates it quite well. And he says this, For Paul, the ultimate judgment is to be forever incapable of knowing God's presence as it has been revealed in Christ. For beings created in the divine image, this is the ultimate desolation. Paul's emphasis is on their being shut out from God's presence, the ultimate loss. So there's, there's always this question of why is there a hell? Why would a loving God produce something as horrible as hell? And there's a great story in Luke in Luke chapter 16, verse 19, Jesus tells a parable about a, a certain rich man who was splendidly clothed in purple and fine linen and lived each day in luxury. And at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus who was covered in sores. As Lazarus lay there longing for scraps from the rich man's table, the dogs would come and lick his open sores. Isn't the Bible a wonderful book? Finally, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to sit behind Abraham at the heavenly banquet. The rich man also died and was buried and he went to the place of the dead. There in torment he saw Abraham in the far distance with Lazarus at his side. The rich man shouted, Father Abraham, have some pity on me. Send Lazarus over here to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I am in anguish in these flames. But Abraham said to him, Son, Remember that during your lifetime you had everything you wanted and Lazarus had nothing. So now he is here being comforted and you are in anguish. And besides, there's a great chasm separate, chasm, sorry, chasm. <sighs> no one can cross over to you from here and no one can cross over to us from there. And then the rich man said, please, Father Abraham, at least send him to my father's home for I have five brothers and I want him to warn them so they don't end up in this place of torment. But Abraham said, Moses and the prophets have warned them. Your brothers can read what they wrote. The rich man replied, no, Father Abraham, 
But if someone is sent to them from the dead, that, then they will repent of their sins and turn to God. But Abraham said, if they won't listen to Moses and the prophet, they won't be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. And so it's interesting, the rich man here does not say, send Lazarus to me so that I can cross over and come into heaven. He says, send Lazarus into hell with me and just make my time here a little bit more pleasant. So we can actually see that he didn't want to leave hell. He, he chose that existence. He accepted that existence and just did, was a bit miffed that it was harder than he thought. So he actually wanted to be there. He's not really, he, he just wants to bring other people into this hell. And he's actually blame shifting. He's saying, you know, I, okay, so I, I, I read the Bible, I didn't believe it, and, and my family has as well. But if you sent somebody from the dead, surely they'd believe. So he, he's, he's blame shifting. He's not taking responsibility for the fact that not only has he put himself in a trajectory to go to hell, but all, the rest of his family as well, because he's ignored what Jesus had done. And the, and the good news of Jesus Christ. But he, he's in this state of denial that any of it's his fault or that he can do any, could have done anything about it. And so we have to sort of look at the fact that people who are in hell have chosen to go there. And while they're there, they're actually not that interested in getting out. And there's, there's, a, there's a great sort of passage from another... Um, theologian that says God he doesn't he actually says hell hell is God leaving a sinful human with the particular character that the person fashioned for themselves in this life the misery one will experience from having to live with one's wicked self will be proportionate to one's degree of awareness of precisely what one was doing when choosing evil so there's two sides to hell or eternal death there's God's response and this is what we bring to the table. God is ticked at what we've done. But at the same time, we're, we're not innocent. And hell is, in a sense, God giving us exactly what we want. In the long run, the answer to those who object to the doctrine of hell is in itself a question. What is it that they're asking God to do? To wipe out past sins and give them a fresh start? He did that on the cross to forgive them but they don't want forgiveness to leave them alone that's what hell is there are only two kinds of people in the end those who say to God thy will be done and those to whom God says in the end thy will be done all that are in hell choose it without that self choice it wouldn't be hell so hell isn't this place of fire and darkness and lava and caves and pitchforks that we imagine. It's actually a place of our own choosing that is separate from God. And while it may be an insufferable place, we haven't, people who go there are not placed in it because they've done something wrong. They're placed in it because their wrongdoing has led them to it and that they have chosen that path. Now just to finish, there's a debate. I'm not sure if it's an important one or not, but people, people obsess about these things and it's, it's interesting enough. If God's the creator of all things, 
Does that include Hill? Is he present? If he's present in all his creation, then surely the Spirit of God is in Hill too. What do you think the Bible says about it? Well, let, Psalm 139 verse 7 says, Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. So the idea is that God sustains all of reality that exists. And if hell is real, then it's reality. And then in some sense, God upholds that reality and sustains it and allows it to exist. So whatever the new creation look like, looks like, the biblical depiction of hell is within it. And again, we, we want to know more about this and we, we'd like to sort of find out more about what the Bible says about it, but the Bible doesn't really say anything. We're pushing to find more information about that and the Bible just doesn't tell us. And so we've got to be careful not to push the language of the Bible too far and make it say things that it doesn't say. And so all we can say about this is you'd be hard-pressed to find in the Bible the idea that hell is a place where God's presence is simply not. The relationship with people in hell has been severed and cut off. They cannot sense God's presence, but it doesn't mean that God's presence isn't there. His presence is always somewhere that exists and hell exists. So we have a choice before us. The choice doesn't start or end when we die. Hell is as much a present reality as heaven is. If we can be bearers of the kingdom of heaven, we can be bearers of eternal death. It's all in the choices we make, hour by hour, day by day, week by week, year by year. We actually choose every day the direction we're going. And it's not a future pie in the sky thing, it's how we live day to day. It's how we interact with people. It's how we, it's how we make choices. As, a, as um, was it Gordon, one of them said it. Uh, Millard Erickson said, the misery one will experience from having to live with one's wicked self will be proportionate to one's degree of awareness of precisely what one was doing when choosing evil. See, we choose it. Hell is actually the natural consequence of a loving God who has given his creation significance. That he honours us by making, allowing every decision we make to be a significant decision. And love actually, real love, has to put up with the idea of rejection. You know, some of you are still upset about the boy or the girl in sixth grade who rejected your advances and it's crippled you ever since that they didn't love you. Think of what God has to put up with. The whole creation, he set into, in place the two people that he set up to look after his world rejected his love. And it wasn't God's fault, it was their choice. And the thing is that out of love, God had to honour 
the choice of his creation. He has to honour our choices. And if our choices lead us to a place of separation from God, whether we call it eternal death or whether we call it hell, it's because God has honoured our choices that we end up there. Is that he loves us so much he will not force us to do what is right. But he will allow us to take our own path either into eternal life or into eternal death. And that's the biblical view of hell. And so what we need to do every day and what I'd like to think you to think about this morning is that we, we, we can make what we think are minor decisions but who knows that a major decision is often just a lot of minor decisions one on top of the other. And God says, right now in your life you can choose to have a life trajectory that's going to end up with eternal life. Ruling and reigning in the new creation when Jesus comes back in a transformed body doing what we're called to do. You can read a lot into the book of Revelation. It's not, I mean, we have this vision of heaven which is almost as bad as this vision of hell where you know, it's, it's an eternal praise and worship session you know, with our hands held up worshipping God forever. I mean, most of us can't do it for more than two minutes. And so, you know, a worship party in heaven is probably as hell for a lot of people. <laughs> There's a lot of jokes about the fact that they'd rather be in hell. There's probably more interesting things to do than actually being as part of a worship service for eternity. But you see, that's not, that's not what heaven is any more than hell is a place where you, you're ankles deep in a river of lava screaming for the rest of eternity. It's a question of being with God and his plans and purposes or not being with God and being purposeless and devoid of all contact with your creator. And so I, I want to take this opportunity to ask everyone here to think about the decisions we make on a daily basis. To actually think, okay, am I making decisions that are putting me on a path to eternal life? Or am I making decisions that are putting me on a path to eternal death? The first one of those decisions that we can make that sets us on the path to eternal life is to decide to follow Jesus. And so I actually want to offer everybody here that opportunity. If you're not following Jesus right now or you've never followed Jesus, that is the first step we have to take to ensure that we're on a trajectory that is going to bring us eternal life. And so I want to pray a prayer with you, if that is you, to actually start you on that journey. Can I ask everybody to stand? Can I get the, the band up while I'm doing this? This is, this is serious stuff. This is not... And uh, you, had to, you had to be there for the, the first part of the, uh, this message, but I talked about the fact that as Christians, we often think that when we die, there's going to be a password moment. You know, we appear before the pearly gates and St. Peter's going to say, what's the password? And, you're, and people are going to say, oh, well, I said that prayer of salvation when I was 16. That's the password. And expect Peter to say, oh, that's right. Yes, you can go in. But it's not. This is not a password moment. 
This is a decision moment. This is one of, it might, you might think it's a trivial decision, you might think it's a really important one, but it's one decision on a pathway to either eternal life or eternal death. So saying a prayer that invites Jesus into your heart is not the password to getting into heaven. It's a decision to be putting yourself on a path to eternal life. It's not the only decision you need to make. It's just the first decision you need to make. So I'm going to ask you, if you're here today and you've never actually made that decision and you want to make that decision this morning, I want you to pray this prayer with me. And if you're here today and you've made that decision but you know that somewhere along the line you've taken a step and the path you're on is going to eternal death, I want you to pray that prayer with me as well. In fact, I'm going to ask everybody to pray that prayer. But I want you to take special note. In fact, can I get everybody just to close their eyes? bow their heads for a moment and if that that is you while nobody's looking around I just want to know who I'm praying for this morning can you just lift your hand up so that I can see it pop it straight down so that I know who I'm praying for this morning nobody else will see nobody's looking around but if you want to make that decision I want to make sure that you pray that prayer start on that path okay open your eyes pray after me mighty God today I change my direction from eternal death to eternal life I accept your son Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior I reject the devil and all he stands for I turn my life around to follow you I am now a child of God. Thank you, Jesus, for saving me. Amen.